listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. Rules of the household. Uh, in this passage, Paul is, is dealing with instructions. He's writing to this ancient church there in Colossae. Um, and he's writing to a bunch of gathered Christians there. And in this passage, he's going to give instructions to um, husbands and wives, how they should relate to one another. He's going to give instructions for children and parents. And then he's going to give instructions for the relationships between masters and slaves, which is going to bring up some really interesting topics that we're going to deal with a little bit later in this passage. And to be honest with you, if I had more time with you, if I had more Sundays, I would probably take this passage... And, uh, and, and probably build a whole series around it and, and take my time with it and really kind of focus on each individual thing with more attention. But we just don't have that kind of time. So I'm going to have to kind of uh, graze through this. But I've got some really good nuggets for you today that I'm really excited to give you. So let's look at Colossians chapter 3. And we'll start in verses 18 and 19. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I want to take you back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, as we just keep that on the screen. Um, At the very beginning of the biblical story, we see Adam and Eve in the garden. They rebel against God. They sin. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's what we call the fall of man. And in doing so, sin now enters into the human heart, begins to corrupt our own natures, and in turn, it begins to corrupt human relationships and all of human society, and even creation itself is corrupted. And so in chapter 3 of Genesis, God begins to explain now to Adam and Eve what is going to happen as a result of this fall. And as it pertains to marriage, God begins to tell them that what's going to happen now as a result is that the the wife, he says, is going to be desiring for her husband, which is really an awkward, confusing way of saying it. But what it really means is the wife, the connotation is she's going to be manipulating or or trying to get control of the husband. And then the husband, usually by, by virtue of his superior strength, is going to be lording over his wife. It has the connotation of, of dominating, um, you know, uh, tyranny, tyrannizing his wife. And God is explaining to him this is the natural consequence of the rebellion of the, of the fall. Now, I want you to understand, first of all, this is not God prescribing how he wants things to be. It's not God saying, okay, now that you've sinned against me, I'm going to make sure your marriages get messed up. No, total opposite, in fact. God's saying, I don't want this to happen. But this is the natural progression of that decision that you made is is now that humanity has chosen and rebelled against God, sin has corrupted human nature, and as a result, it's going to corrupt your relationships, which includes your marriages, and it's going to corrupt all of human society. God is not prescribing this. He's describing this is what's going to happen. So so what was supposed to be this beautiful, one flesh, God-honoring, mutually equal relationship now is going to get reduced to just this power struggle. And unfortunately, that's been the story of of human marriage from the very beginning of human society. In fact, not even just true of marriage. It's true of all of human society. 
society and government. It's the story of, of people trying to get control over one another, manipulating, using their advantages to exploit things for their own benefit. That's the way that the human race has operated now for thousands of years, going back to the very beginning of our story. But for those of us who are being saved, who have been given a new nature in Christ, we are not to be conformed to this pattern. We are to swim upstream against this pattern. So I want us to look at this passage in Philippians chapter 2. A very important passage for us today. Uh, Paul says this, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, and that would include marriage, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, in other words, he had all of these divine advantages. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So watch this. For our benefit, for our salvation, Christ considered our interest ahead of his own. And he humbled himself and sacrificed. Paul is saying to us, this is the same mentality you and I need to be carrying into all of our relationships including our spousal relationships, our friend relationships, our enemy relationships. Rather than trying to gain control and manipulate and subvert, we're called to come under and serve and be the foot washers of the world, putting on display the beautiful character of God as revealed on the cross. Somebody say amen. You with me today? Let me know you're here. I'm going to preach longer if you don't amen me today. Uh, all right. Somebody take it serious. Okay. This is explicitly what God says through Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. I, I won't have it on the screen today. But, but it, it, he says something very revolutionary in Ephesians 5. It doesn't hit us as revolutionary, but in the first century, it would have been just a crazy thought. Um, uh, Paul says, husbands and wives, submit yourselves to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. Like People don't talk like that in the first century Greco-Roman world. Submit yourselves then to one another. And then he connects it to the um, relationship between Christ and his church. And here's what he says. Watch this. He says, husbands, you're in the position of Christ. Now, here's why he says that. Because in the first century Greco-Roman world, the husbands had all the power. They had all of the authority. They had all of the say-so. Women were, were reduced to second-class citizens. They were, th their status wasn't much higher than that of a slave. And so Paul says, you're in the position of Christ. You have all of the power in your culture. You have all of the say-so. But you need to follow the example of Christ. Even though you've got all the power, you need to lay that down, come under and serve and submit and defer even if you don't think your wife deserves it because we didn't deserve what Christ did for us. We were sinners and Christ died for us. So husbands, you take the initiative. Come under and serve. Humble yourselves. And then he says to the wives, you're in the position of the church. You need to respond to your husbands the same way the church ought to respond to Christ. And that is you love your husbands. So we see this mutual submission mutual deferring to one another, mutual submitting to one another, and that's what kingdom marriage 
looks like. Because it looks like Jesus. Whereas this power over struggle doesn't look anything like Jesus. Oh, I wish I had a whole week to teach on this. But we got we to move, man. We're never going to finish this. So let's look at the rest of this passage. I want to, I wanna, once again, I want to read through it broadly. And then I want to make a few comments. And then we'll, we'll take it verse by verse. There's a couple things I want to point out to you. But, but I want to look at this broadly. I got a few things I want to say. Uh, starting at verse 20. Um, Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your masters, your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, this passage raises some interesting questions. First of all, is the Bible Bible here condoning slavery? Now, up until 150, 160 years ago, half of America would have said, of course, no brainer. It's right there in the black and white. Masters, slaves, obey your masters. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And you had preachers and pastors and churches, not just excusing slavery, supporting it and promoting it and defending it using the Bible. In fact, one of the reasons, not the, not the only reason, there were lots of reasons, but one of the reasons for many of these slave owners why they wanted to convert their slaves to Christianity and to the teaching of the Bible is so that they could use it as a billy club against them. You convince them that this is the word of God. You, could, you, you persuade them this is God's word. And then you open up to Colossians 3 and you say, look, slaves, obey your masters. You want to please God, don't you? I'm your master. You need to submit. You need to obey to me. O- obey me and do what I want you to do. So the question is, why is that even, let's just be honest, why is that even in the word of God? I mean, I, I think most of us believe the Bible's inspired. How many of you believe the word of God is, the, is inspired? I, my hand's raised. I believe this is the inspired word of God. So why does it appear, at least here, that the Bible is condoning slavery? I mean, I'm gonna be, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. If you're looking for any passage or any verse in the Bible that explicitly denounces the institution of slavery, did you know you're not going to find it? You're not going to find it. So why is it? Why is this in here? The answer is this, folks. I want you to listen very carefully. I'm I'm about to give you something that that's going to really help you. The answer is always found on the cross. The cross is the key that unlocks everything. On the cross we see the perfect definitive revelation of God's character. This is who God is, perfectly revealed. And watch this. When we look at the cross, what we see is a God who doesn't just say to human human race, here's my ideal, take it or leave it. What What we see is a God who says, here's my ideal. Oh, you keep falling short. You're not living up to it. Let me now stoop down to your level. Let me enter into solidarity with you and bear your sin and take on that ugliness 
And I'm going to bear that image that is uglier than who I really am so that I can set you free from this and lead you out of it. And if this is the same God who inspired the Bible, then we shouldn't be surprised to find God doing this type of stuff all throughout the Bible if you know to look for it. The cross isn't the first time that God humbled himself. It's not the first time that God took upon himself an appearance that's uglier than who he really is. It's not the first time he was self-sacrificial. He's been doing cross-like stuff from the very beginning. So when you look at the Old Testament, what you see is God working with these ancient people. And he tells them, here's my ideal. Here's how I want you to live. And they keep messing up. They keep failing. And God doesn't just throw his hands up. He stoops down to their level and he says, all right, let me solidify, solidify myself with you. And let me bear some of your sin. Let me take upon yourself, myself some of that ugliness so that slowly, gradually, I can set you free and lead you where I want to take you. Just like any wise missionary, I, uh, let me give you an illustration just to help you. Um, there's a missionary group that I'm aware of that works in Africa. They do a lot of work with some of these secluded African tribes, uh, you know, unreached people groups. And, and there's this one particular group of missionaries that were working with one of these tribes. And this particular tribe, they had this practice that was part of their culture. It was actually part of a, a religious ritual that they had that they had been engaged in for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. And in this ritual, what they would do is they would take these little girls and they would practice female circumcision. It was brutal, it was barbaric, it was inhumane. And these American missionaries, they encountered this tribe, they witnessed this practice, they're horrified by it. Horrified. But they also understand, we're Americans who have just encountered them and their culture. We're not going to change something that these people have been doing for hundreds of years. We don't just show up and tell them, this is wrong, stop doing it. This is part of who they are. They've been doing this for countless generations. So we can't just take them from point A to point B overnight. we got to work with these people where they are. And so these missionaries realize we can't take them where we want to go just like that. But what we can do is stoop down to their level, solidify ourselves with them, slowly, gradually point them to a better way. And that's exactly what they were able to do. They took these ancient people, these, uh, this, this primitive tribe, not ancient or modern, but this primitive tribe, and they're able to say, you know what? Let us show you a more sanitary way to do this. Let us show you a more humane. If you're going to do it, let, me, let us show you a more humane way to do it. And so now they're slowly bringing them along. Folks, that's exactly what God does in the Old Testament. God is the heavenly missionary. And he's working with these Old Testament people, folks, fresh out of slavery in Egypt. When you read the stories that you read, in the, I was just talking about this with somebody uh, a few days ago. When you read, like, the book of Judges, it's just, like, appalling some of the stuff you read, you know? And you got to understand, these people that God's working with, they are not 21st century American evangelical Christian Sunday school teachers. These are ancient, morally primitive people living in the Bronze Age. All they know is polygamy. All they know is violence and bloodshed. All they know is slavery. All around them is nothing but paganism and immorality and idol worship. That's who they are. That's their entire world. They don't have 21st century Christian ethics. 
They're ancient, ancient and morally primitive. And so God's got to take these people. And even though God says, here's where I want to bring them eventually, I can't do it overnight. They can't handle it. So I got to stoop down to their level. I got to solidify myself with them and I got to work with them where they are and gradually, slowly, with care and compassion, bring them closer to the ideal where I want to take them. Is this making sense? And that's what we see on the cross. Just like when you look at the Old Testament, you're going to see some ugly stuff. When you when you look at the cross, you see some of the worst ugliness you can imagine. But that's not all you see. If you look past the ugliness and through the ugliness, you're going to see the unfathomable beauty of a God who's willing to take that ugliness on himself so he can set us free from it. And that's what he does in the Old Testament. Yeah, man, when you read the Old Testament, man, there is some ugly, ugly stuff. But the true revelation isn't on the surface. The true revelation is when you look through the ugliness and you see a God who's willing to enter into it to lead them out of it. When you read the Bible through the lens of the cross, it just brings a clarity to everything. You you no longer feel like you have to make excuses for the ugliness in the Bible. You're able to say, yeah, it's ugly, man. That's some ugly stuff. But it doesn't mean it's not the word of God. Because the cross is ugly. And it's the quintessential revelation of who God is. Is this helping anybody today? I'm giving you good stuff. I'm giving you good preaching. You may not realize it. Just... I'm giving you some stuff to think about and chew on this week. All right. So with that mindset, let's look again at this passage in Colossians, Colossians 3, and look at it a little bit more closely. Let's zoom in on on a few things here. In verse 20, starting with verse 20, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Miss Rosa said that would be nice. Back to verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. Now, when Paul writes this, this is not breaking new ground. It's not revolutionary. This is the way everybody understood that society needs to operate. All ancient cultures believed that children have to be raised. And to be raised, they need to have some rules. Everybody understood that. that This is not new stuff. You got to have some rules. We learn that through common sense or by experience that that if children don't have healthy rules, they go from being um, little monsters to big monsters. So Paul's not breaking any new ground. Children obey your parents and everything. Everybody understands that. Here's where he is breaking new ground, though, is the motivation he's bringing to it. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, not because your parents deserve it. Not because your parents have inherent authority over you. Obey your parents in everything, not because it'll make you a nice person or because culture expects that of you. Paul says, children, obey your Lord in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. You see, this has very significant implications for those of us in this room who are moms and dads. And it's it's something we've got to work on here. What we've got to learn to do at at a very young age, in age-appropriate ways, is we've got to teach our children the reason you obey mom, the reason you obey dad, it's not because my authority is my authority, because it's not. I don't have intrinsic authority over my kids. What authority I do have is the authority I've been given in the light of Christ. But we've got to teach our kids, you're one Lord, you're one master, Jesus Christ. And you obey mom and dad because Christ your Lord is pleased when you do. 
we got to find ways to instill that into our kids. And it's something really all of us need to be in an awareness of. You have one master in life, one Lord, one authority, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus tells me to submit to some things. But I, I, I submit to those things not just for the sake of those things. I submit to those things because my one master tells me to do so. So Jesus, for example, tells me to obey the government, to submit to governing authorities, to honor governing authorities. So as best as Ryan Post can, I want to do that. I don't always do it perfectly when I'm driving down the interstate. I try to, but, but I need to be submitting to the governing authorities because my master's telling me to do so. But it's not because government has in, any intrinsic authority over me because they don't. I'm a kingdom person, folks. I belong to a different nation. A different kingdom. I'm an ambassador to this culture. And my one president is Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. I say that right now. Jesus is my president. I'm going to get a lot of amens in here. Let's be real. I've been saying it for years. I said it two years ago. I didn't get quite as many amens. In fact, I, I, I remember. I remember saying something like that. And I watched somebody walk out of this room. Never came back. Okay, let me tell you something. I don't care if you leave. I'm not a politician. I'm not trying to to pander to a constituency here. I'm here to tell you the truth. And if you're a kingdom person, if you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. He's your president. He's your Lord. He's your one authority. And we're devoted to his agenda. You can't serve two masters. I got that out of the Bible, by the way. So, so Jesus tells me to honor the government, submit to government, obey the government. So that's what I'm going to do. But if government ever tells me to do something that, that is not congruent with the call of Christ upon my life, then I have a responsibility out of fidelity to my one president to disobey. There's a room for civil disobedience. But other than that, I need to submit to the governing authorities. But the only reason Jesus tells me to do that is because it's not even worth the trouble. I mean, they got to do what they got to do. That's fine. It's important. But I've got a higher calling. I've got kingdom work to do. And I don't want to get distracted by civilian affairs. I got to get to what my father, what my master's called me to do. So we got to be instilling this into our kids that they have one master in life. It ain't even me. They have one master, and that's Jesus. And I instill that into them, not just by teaching them that verbally, but through them watching my life. They see how dad lives. He lives in fidelity to Jesus no matter what any other authority tells him to. And that's what my kids need to see. we got to move on. And then Paul talks to the fathers, verse 21. Fathers, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I, I just want you to notice in the previous verse, he says, children, obey your parents, plural. Here he just talks to the fathers. Fathers, do not embitter your children. So, so does this mean that, you know, mothers can embitter your children? Why does he isolate the fathers? Again, it's because in the first century, the fathers had the authority. They had the power. They had to say so. It was the fathers who were in charge of discipline. The mothers were on the sidelines. So it makes sense in this culture for Paul to only address the fathers. But this, again, this is a, a situation where God is the heavenly missionary stooping down to the level of this culture, speaking to them where they are. It doesn't mean that the way families were structured in the first century is the way all families always should be structured. 
God's dealing with them where they are. But see, in our culture, we're not nearly as patriarchal as they were in the ancient world. That's just a fact. And in our culture, mothers do have some power, generally speaking. They do have that influence. They have that role of discipline as well. They share that responsibility. And so it makes sense for us to take Paul's words here and broaden it to include mothers as well. Fathers and mothers don't embitter your children. That word embitter means to to exasperate. It's when we discipline our children in ways that um, cause them to be perpetually discouraged and frustrated and, and despair to the point of just wanting to give up. They just constantly see that you in, in anger because and they just want to quit. And as parents, th- there could be all kinds of ways we do this. But in, in a Christian world, one of the ways this is frequently done is we set up standards and ideals for our children sometimes that are just impossible to meet, impossible to, to attain, just unreasonable, unrealistic expectations. And what can happen is that when a child begins to despair, and they feel like they're just never going to be able to live up to your standards and your ideals, what tends to happen is now they try to get a sense of worthwhile and value by breaking those rules. Because one thing that we know about human nature is that everybody needs to have a sense of worth. Every person craves that. We want to feel like our life is worthwhile. We want to feel like we have significance. We have value. Now, us in this room, we know we're supposed to be getting all of that from Jesus but your children need to be getting that through Jesus, primarily through you. You are the primary worth giver in their lives because their identity is still being formed. And so that child needs to be getting their worth and their value from Jesus through you as mom and dad. And when we hold our, our children to standards and ideals that are unrealistic, and our child begins to despair that they're just never going to be able to live up to those standards, the pattern that, that things tend to take is that now they start trying to get that sense of worth and value by breaking those rules because there are other people who will applaud that. So now they're getting life from their peers. And so we've got to have standards, first of all, that are realistic. And I just want to say a few things about that. First of all, you've got to make sure that it's not about you, that it's always about your kids. I see this a lot of times, especially because our church has a school. And I see it in athletics, I see it in academics, I see it all over the place. It's like uh, almost every day I see this. (laughs) Where where sometimes as parents, we feel like we're bad parents if our child is not meeting a certain standard or not getting a certain grade or whatever. And maybe that child's not even capable of reaching that standard. But we feel like it makes us look like a bad parent if our child isn't meeting those certain standards. And so we try to force it on them. You see, that's when you're making it about you. It's not about the kids. Listen, think of it this way. If God Almighty was willing to take upon himself an appearance that was less than who he was in order to solidify himself with us, then as parents, we need to follow that example and be willing to take on an appearance that's less than what we think we are in order to solidify ourselves with our children. Are you hearing me? And it's not like one size fits all either. What's right for Johnny might not be right for Susie. Maybe Johnny can get straight A's, no problem. But Susie's hitting it out the park if she's getting straight C's. 
And so you've got to individualize your standards. This is the art of parenting. And never fall into the trap of comparison where you say, well, Johnny, Johnny's able to do it. Why can't you do it? I think that's one of the worst things you can do as a parent. And everything we do, we need to be honoring God by reflecting God's character. And God, God gives us an ideal. He gives us the ideal. But when we don't meet it, he doesn't just damn us forever, you know, immediately. What he does is he, he, uh, he enters into solidarity with us. And so also, we need to have an ideal for our kids. And when they don't meet that ideal, you know, sometimes there's some negative consequences because we don't want to raise slackers. So there's room for discipline, absolutely. Some of you need to hear that. But we balance discipline, just like God does, with mercy and justice. And that means we stoop down to that child's level and we solidify ourselves with that child in the midst of their failure. Because the only thing worse than feeling like a failure is feeling like you're you're a failure and you're alone. And God never leaves his kids alone in their failures. We don't need to leave our kids alone in their failures. We we do whatever we can. We just go to that child and we say, listen, what can I do to help you not fail math class for the fourth time? And sometimes we just got to throw out the standards altogether and just be happy with whatever inch-by-inch progress they're making. Sometimes... Just not moving in the wrong direction is a big achievement. So we got to adjust those standards. And above all, most importantly, they need to feel worth from you. Whatever they do, however they're succeeding, however they're failing, one thing that needs to be constant is they need to know that I have unsurpassable worth in the eyes of God, and they feel that worth from mom and dad. Think of it like this. You imagine a piggy bank. And every time you affirm your child, every time you encourage your child, it's like putting a penny in a piggy bank. And every time you discipline your child, you're taking a quarter out of it. And you need to make sure that bank never gets empty. Because if that bank ever gets empty, your child will have no choice. They're going to start looking for pennies and quarters somewhere else. So make sure you always have a nice stash of money in that piggy bank so that no matter how they're succeeding, no matter how they're failing, They understand they know what their worth is in Christ. See, this is parenting kingdom style. And we do it out of reverence for Christ. All right, last thing. Let's look at the last bit, the last passage here. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, I know I spoke to this issue of slavery earlier. Let me just add one quick thing, and then we're going to apply this. Um, It is also important to understand that slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world was not exactly the way slavery operated in the pre-abolition South here in America. In in the ancient Greco-Roman world, slavery was very often, most often, like a form of indentured servanthood, where slaves were often paid a minimum wage. It was very minimal, but they did receive a wage, and they could, at least in principle, eventually purchase their freedom. So there was an element of hope there. There was an element of humanization, whereas in the pre-abolition South here in America, you didn't have any of that. There was no wage, and there was no hope of ever getting out. And so there were some very significant differences there. But still, no matter how you cut it, this is dehumanizing service. These men and women have no rights. 
and 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 uh, they could not they could just they were just bought and sold like a piece of property. So it was a very different situation, and yet thank God that most people today understand that this in the Bible is a, a, a matter of cultural accommodation. That this is not a universal situation where God wants slavery to always be in existence. No, God's stooping down to their level. Most people understand that. It took us about 1,900 years to figure it out. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. And it took 1,900 years for us to be guided into that truth. But we were, thankfully. Finally, it took a lot of bloodshed, but it happened. But thankfully, most people understand today this is, this is a cultural accommodation. But it still has application for us today because the principles Paul is giving us here also apply to anyone who's in service to another, employers and employees. What Paul is saying here is that if you're an employee working for someone, you need to do it as unto the Lord. You need to go to your job, work hard, not just to get a paycheck, not just in hope of getting a promotion, not just in hope of getting a pay raise. You work hard because you represent Jesus and you're doing as an act of worship to him. And Paul says, if you will work hard and do your job and represent Jesus well, you're going to receive a reward in heaven. Amen. And see, this is so important because we have this tendency sometimes to divide in our lives the spiritual from the secular. And we think, well, what I do here in this room on Sundays, that's the spiritual part of my life. But then I go to my job on Monday, my mundane work, and I hate my job, but I got to do it because I got to put food on the table and then I'm going to die. And we have this aversion to the idea of working for the Lord at our job. And I know folks like this. I know folks and I've seen folks who come to church and just put people to shame, just lifting their hands and singing out loud and they're just going after it. And then they go to their job throughout the week and they're just slackers. And they, they, they steal time from their boss. And they got a bad reputation at their workplace. And you got to understand what you're doing at your workplace is every bit as much of a worship to God as what you do in here on Sundays. I know folks who with the same tongue used to worship and praise God will go out and get in, in, in the middle of a group of people and slander somebody else's reputation. It's evil. It's wicked. It's wrong. These things ought not be. Everything you do, do it unto the Lord. Whether you're a pastor or a plumber or a teacher or a banker or a garbage collector, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, you do it as worship unto God. And Paul says you're going to be paid in this life, but you're also going to get paid in the next. So let's tear down this wall between religious and secular, this wall between spiritual and non-spiritual, kingdom and not kingdom. No, Paul says let's make it all kingdom. Whatever you're doing throughout your day, invite the king into it. Because any place, any activity can become a kingdom place and a kingdom activity when you're inviting the king into it. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.